Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh. And today I have a special guest who's joining me to talk about many topics, among them blitzscaling a nonprofit organization during a COVID-19 pandemic, which is a remarkable degree of difficulty task under any circumstances. Please welcome Ricardo Rocha of Bondadosa. Hi, hi everyone. Thank you for having me, Chris. So Ricardo, I first learned about you through my friend Banks Benitez and his Uncharted podcast. And I'm curious, how did you get to know Banks? How do you guys know each other? Oh man, um, this goes back 2017. I think it must have been the month of July. Um, and I was part of an incubator program through Uncharted and the Unreasonable Institute at the time. Um, and I was paired with um, several mentors, uh, one of which was Tom Chi. Oh, Tom is wonderful. Yeah, and he's great. Um, and he taught me a lot about uh, a, uh, the concept of a rapid prototyping um, and the idea around a minimal viable product and how to actually do that. And um, I had a wonderful experience. I think it was a really long five days in which I realized that the product that I was building was, I was building that uh, with, with no user in mind. And I was young and I was uh, just learning at the time and Banks was leading that organization. And so uh, really an impactful uh, time in my life. Talk about incredible moments that, that really change the trajectory of something. Yes, and for those people who are listening who are unfamiliar with Uncharted, formerly known as the Unreasonable Institute, it is a social impact accelerator that works with talented entrepreneurs like Ricardo, who are fellows, and then goes ahead and brings in mentors like the great Tom Chi, who is one of the founding people over at Google X, a brilliant executive designer, now venture capitalist investor who's helping to save the world. And it hopefully, and it certainly sounds like it did in this case, in a short period of time, we can have a big impact on an entrepreneur's trajectory. And it sounds like Tom has had a big impact on yours. That's right. I mean, I think that um, uh, you can read about it. You can, you can you know, find presentations about it, but if you're not walking around, um, and I think this is what, uh, what Tom, uh, Tom and I did, walking around Walton Street, it's a very uh, famous, a ton, a ton of history in this, in this area. Um, and we walked around and asked people about, how, about the app that I was building. Um, and he really uh, showed me um, the importance of one, listening to your user, using and your customer and building for them, which at the time as a young entrepreneur, right, you, you, you have all these ideas and great vision about what this, these apps are going to do and how they're going to change the world, but are they really? And, and, and it, it's not until you actually sit, you actually present them with this prototype, a legitimate prototype, don't build anything prototype it and 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 then and then build on top of actuals right is is it, it was a really transformative uh, lesson that i carry uh with me to this day uh, it's also saved me a lot of money and not doing that has also cost me a lot of money <laughs> yes well that's an important lesson most people don't get a chance to learn it from tom so you're quite fortunate in that regard that's now, true before we go on i really want to dive into so many different topics but for the sake of the listening audience what does Bondadosa do and where does the name come from? You know, the, the name comes from, a, uh, let me start with the name because I think it's going to illustrate exactly what we do. Uh, Bondadosa was formerly Goodness Groceries. Um, and in the attempt to make it more relatable to a low income, um, uh, more largely Latino, fam Latino um, uh, 
Yeah, and, and, the, and the intent to make it more uh, adoptable for the Latino community. Um, there was a conversation to be had with a community board member. Her name is Maria. And Maria uh, said, what does goodness mean? And there's not really a good translation for goodness. Uh, but what goodness, what, what the intent of being good is to be kind, right? And so she said that bondad was the, the, the most um, a straightforward uh, uh, translation of that. And so we stuck with that. I think that um, it really captures the idea of being kind. Bondad means to be kind. And uh, acting kind means to be, it, uh, or being kindly is what bondadosa means. I think it's, um, it's a perfect description of what we do as well and the intent of what we want to do. We, we are in a, on a mission to build a more sustainable and more kind and innovative and more responsive food ecosystem here in Colorado. Um, and in order to do that, we have to be both kind and empathetic to the, to the, to the customer, right? The end customer, uh, which is oftentimes a Latino mom uh, single mom who may qualify for WIC and her access, you know, and her limits and her and and her options to access to food are limited um, and small. And so uh, for us, Bondadosa is really in, on this mission to create a more sustainable food system by partnering with for-profits, nonprofit and, and nonprofits and governmental agencies to get more food, good food to more people in the form of storage and distribution. Fantastic. And one of the things that I want to do is really help people understand where you came from, because you have a very interesting life story. So maybe you can pull us back, talk about uh, your family, how you grew up, and the path that led you to where you are today with Bondadosa. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm originally from, uh, thank you for doing that. I think it's important to frame first, frame the, the, the backstory to all of this, right, um, and where this empathy comes from. It really um, originates back in um, Mexico, uh, in a state called Guanajuato, in a little city called Las Ilamas. That's where I grew up, and it was a um, what I would describe a rural mountain town. Um, no sidewalks, no paved roads, um, just dirt and literally dirt uh, floors. Um, and um, at the time, my parents could not afford food, and so they would go to a grocery, not a grocery store, but a corner store across the street, um, and they would ask for almost like food on layaway, and they would pay off the food as, as they could. And so then my sister was born, and then another sister was born, and then another sister was born, and the food became, you know, quite expensive, and those trips became very expensive, and my dad at the time decided that um, there was opportunity in the United States, and that we would immigrate um, and cross the border um, to do so. And so uh, we did. I, I arrived in the United States when I was four years old. Um, and then my undocumented journey began, right? I didn't know it at the time, but um, I would then uh, uh, end up growing up in a land that didn't want me, in a, in a, in a country that, that uh, built systemic barriers uh, for people like me. And 11, uh, and, and, and 11, I think there's 11 million individuals here in the United States, if not more, who, are, um, who have grown up or continue to live under this experience. And, and for me, that, that was real formative, right? It, was, it shaped my understanding of, of this world, one, um, the understanding of how it is and how it should be. Um, and I think um, that was a great uh, reason of why, or the, um, one of the main reasons why I grew up um, being very, very, very in tune with activism 
um, and social justice for from a very early on for very early on. Um, I graduated from a from a traditional high school, a low income high school, which meant that you don't have access to um, small classrooms, you don't have access to all resources, you don't have access to healthcare, you don't have access to opportunity in higher education. I graduated with 1.8 GPA, which meant that I also, you know, a lot of that was on me too, and my circumstance and my lived in environment. And so all these things that were kind of happening in the background, and then you tack on on documentation. Um, it was a really, really, really hard time for me. And um, uh, what's really interesting is that there was a person, uh, his name is Leonardo de la Rocha, and um, he is uh, an exec in various companies there in Silicon Valley. Uh, but um, he, he said, look, Ricardo, if you stop messing around, I will, I will, uh, I will uh, um, sponsor your documentation. And so that was the case. And so I went, ended up going to school at MSU Denver, um, at which point I was asked, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I was like, wow, um, drastically different from one year to another, right? Um, and I knew from Mexican telenovelas that you could do one or two things. You could be a lawyer or you could be a doctor. <laughs> and so I was like, I want to be a doctor. Um, I saw Dr. Hinojosa uh, uh, and I saw that he grew up in very similar circumstances than I did. And I thought, well, if he can do that, so can I. And I didn't know what I was getting into. I did not know that all the incredible amount of remediation that I would end up have, having to do. Um, I think it was, must have been two years of learning how to read and write and do math. Um, and I embarked on this journey to be a pre-med student. And I did really well. In fact, I, I, did, I did well enough to have a chance at going to medical school. And, uh, and so I began doing internships at various um, healthcare organizations. And I began to realize that um, what I wanted to do really was to have a deep impact in the communities that I grew up in. And that I wasn't going to be able to do that nine minutes at a time. That's usually what happens when you go into a doctor's office and you say, well, what, you know, what's going on? Um, many times it has to do with four major health issues, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and malnutrition. And then they all lead to other things throughout your entire life. And what I realized was that as a family doctor, you only can do so much. And at the time there was no way to prescribe healthy food as a form of medicine. There was no way to say, and that's still not, you know, something that's, that, uh, that, that we think about every single day. But those kinds of things were not, they were not, they didn't exist in our insurance system. They didn't exist in our, in our hospitals, in our healthcare clinics. And I was disillusioned by it all um, to the point where I, you know, had one, one particular um, client. Her name was Manuela. And Manuela was like, listen, Ricardo, I need to go to the doctor. I'm, I don't feel good. I don't, I don't feel great. And I said, look, I'm going to take you to the doctor. They're going to do a healthcare screening, all the blood work, 25 bucks max. And a month later, she comes back and she's like, look, I, want you to, I don't want you to tell anyone, Ricardo. I don't want you to tell the, the hospital, but I want you to know that they charged me $140 and that $140, I couldn't pay them. So the community came together and they paid for that, for that bill. Um, and it broke my heart. And I, I say this um, for complete honesty that I did not feel comfortable participating in a system that preyed upon someone like Manuela. Um, and, and then I said, I was in my fifth, my sixth year of college at the time, because now I'm, I'm, this is back in 2017. And I said, wow, this is not what I want to do, but I spent so much time doing it. Uh, what do I do next? And I said, you know, I, I, I built a resignation letter over the weekend. I turned it in on Monday and I said, 
I'm going to finish my degree, but this is not what I'm going to do. And so I put pause um, in, my, in, my, in my career to health and healthcare and began um, and my career in entrepreneurship in a weird way. I helped start this company called Snap to Save. And Snap to Save was a company that uh, basically wanted to connect save a lot or, or low income shoppers, save a lot shoppers, which are oftentimes low income shoppers, to healthcare benefits in the form of reward points. So you could shop for groceries, get reward points, and turn them into a healthcare clinic and receive healthcare benefits. And it blew my mind. I was like, what do you mean? So you don't. So you can take food money and turn it into healthcare money, and there's no like actual literal trans, uh, transaction there. So on the cost savings later down on, on the exhaust pipe, right, of the, of the healthcare system. And it blew my mind and, I, and opened my eyes to the idea or, or the, the concept of social entrepreneurship and social impact, and that there was an economy to be had there, and that there was a huge amount of impact uh, that we could have. Um, and soon after that, um, I, I took a leap of faith. I said, if a, I think if we can create a food system that better serves someone like Manuela, someone like my mom, my sisters, and my cousins, then we can avoid the healthcare, the healthcare issues that exist in these communities, which are, again, back related to what I realized when I was in those internships was hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and malnutrition. And that if, I, if we could address them at a systemic level, if we could address them almost like a, a parcel proportional that, that, that we could indeed solve some of these things like type two diabetes um, or whatever, um, focusing on specifically on the food that we consume. And so then Bondadosa was born. Wow, there's so many different elements to that story. I wanna just highlight a couple of them and then feel free to elaborate further. The first, of course, is that here you are, you're somebody who is currently contributing enormously to the society, helping so many other people. And you came into this country undocumented as a child, no idea what that meant. And you grew up through this process. And there was this pivotal point when Leonardo came in and sort of changed the path of your life. How did that happen? What did he see, because obviously he saw the talented guy you were, not the 1.8 GPA guy who was maybe not taking high school so seriously. How did he see the talent and what did that mean to you? I think, I mean, I'll, I'll let me start with what it means to me. You know, I think it means the world to me. It means a second chance for me. Um, and I took it as such, one last chance. Do you want to do this? Yes or no? And at the time, I didn't know I was that kind of risk taker, <laughs> and I and I and I took that chance. Um, and I think it, you can see it now, right? As a, a, the personality and my my attitude to, towards challenges, challenges and problems. Um, and and so it continues to mean the world to me. It continues to define who I am. And it and I and I tell him every time I see him, every every quarter when I go out to San Jose. Um, and so that's what it means to me. Um, how, I'm not, I'm not sure what, I was 18 at the time, I was 19 at the time, and it took a year and a half later to actually final the, final, finalize the process, so I ended up doc, uh, being a, doc, uh, a legal, doc, uh, legal citizen uh, when I was 21 years old, about 21 years old, so um, I think maybe, perhaps, maybe he saw a lot of himself in me, and I think that we all do that 
to some degree, right? A lot of us are mentors and a lot of us give back in this way. Um, I think the difference is here that um, uh, one, we're, we're, we're related and then two, um, we spend a lot of time together after mm -hmm. that, a lot of time together. And so um, we almost became more than anything friends uh, beyond cousins and then more like brothers than anything. And so I think that's part of the reason why there was so, so much congruency. But I do know that this is a thing that people don't know that they can do for undocumented folks. They don't know that they can become sponsors, whether, you know, and that you can become, you can become a, a, a transformative, transformative figure in, in people's lives. Um, he was definitely that for me. I definitely a conversation for him uh, and, and, a, and perhaps in a whole other interview around, around undocumentation and how that process um, evolves. I'll say this. Um, Immigrants, you know, the, the whole concept of like immigrants, we get the job done, right? It's like the Alexander Hamilton quote. Um, it's so true. And, and investing in immigrants and immigrant-led businesses um, is one of the best things that we can do um, for this country and for this world. Well, I really love the idea of doing another broadcast with Leonardo and talking about this process because I do think most people don't realize it. But I think the other element of it that's interesting is you think about entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is all about being able to make the impossible happen, something that you're doing right now. And we'll talk more about that later. But you never would have gotten that opportunity without Leonardo, without somebody stepping in. You have all the characteristics required to be an entrepreneur, that risk-taking attitude, that willingness to make a difference, that burning desire to change the world. But without Leonardo, without that one happenstance of, of relationship and blood, this might never have happened for you. And exactly. it just emphasizes how important it is to make entrepreneurship more inclusive. I think that's absolutely true. And um, yeah, I, it gives me chills just to think about, about that. And I think about it every single day. And every time I have a chance to talk about the story, I talk about it um, because I think it's important to share, not to show, uh, shed light into Leonardo and, and, and that's, that's obviously there. And there is um, all kinds of props that are, are needed and warranted to someone, someone like him. But it's about the idea about the impact that one person can have on someone's life. And then therefore hundreds of thousands of people, you know, five, five, 10 years later, um, you don't, you just don't know. And, and just, I think just like in entrepreneurship and on entrepreneurship, you just, you are working tirelessly, tirelessly, towards a dream that no one else sees but you right and and that that is um and and in that particular instance was the american dream for me and he didn't know i didn't see it he saw it and and i think that that's that's uh, uh and then i bought in and i think that's the process right uh, and sometimes a lot of it and for 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 for, for a long time it was just him believing in a dream that no one saw but him and 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 I think that's 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 the, that's the incredible part here, and that that's the thing that we can do for other people, and other and and of course in businesses too. Yeah, and one of the things that I remember discussing in a prior podcast episode with Teju Ravilochan, who of course worked very closely with banks, yeah, is that people don't necessarily want to be rescued. Leonardo didn't rescue you. What he did is he gave you an opportunity and then you seized upon it. Yeah. And that 
seizing upon the opportunity has now impacted, like you said, thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of lives as a result. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's the, the whole idea of um, you can't bring someone to a stream or you can't give someone a resource or whatever until, until they're ready. Um, you can definitely keep them there and you can wait or you can walk away, right? Like, can you, can you f build a fence around this horse that needs to drink from this stream? And then eventually he's going to drink, <laughs> the horse will drink from, yeah, you can do that. Um, and I think that's, that's what is required in, in, in this instance is to build the environment, whether it's for an individual or a, pro a process or for, or, or, or technology or a company um, for it to be, to give it a chance to be successful. And I think that is exactly what happened. And then you talk about what happened after that, right? It was education programs were founded. I, f I helped fund uh, Brother to Brother, uh, help with camp, the college assistant migrant program in my school, RISE, a program for refugees, immigrants, and, and, and others, and assailies, um, and a ton of other programs and projects that eventually led me to work at the Colorado State Legislature, which then I had a huge impact in, in, in the economic development, um, uh, uh, health care, um, and the environment, the immigrant rights and economic opportunity for the Latino community here at a, a, one of the oldest nonprofits organizations here in the state. Um, and then eventually Bondalosa. And so like, you just, you just don't know. And I think that is, that is such a, such an interesting, you'd know, but you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. you, you knew something was there, but you don't know what, what it would take. Um, and you know what the, the sad thing about it is that I'm not that unique, Chris. Um, right. I think that there, I am not that special. Um, and I think that there are millions of people. I know there are millions of people with the same aptitude and resiliency to be successful and, th and, to, and, and, are, and are willing and able to thrive if there was a system and individuals willing to invest in them like Leonardo did with me, right? And so um, that is something that I know that I, 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 I know to be true. Yes, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity sadly is not. And that is the work of social impact and social justice to try to make sure that opportunity is distributed more evenly and more fairly to all. Right, right. One last topic of conversation before we turn our attention to Bondadosa. And I just have to ask, because obviously we have had the, over the past four years, uh, president of the United States, an administration that has basically been anti-immigration. And I would say that the president has said, both as a candidate, as a president, many very hurtful things of various kinds. And, you know, one of the things that would be interesting to hear about is from your perspective as a former undocumented immigrant, how did all this make you feel? What was going through your mind as all this was happening? Mm. Obviously the normal stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I'm upset. I'm angry. Why are we still here? Like, why is this, why is underbelly of America so disgusted with the idea of my presence? Um, and my, and the, and the opportunity that this country gives to people like me. Um, but I think the cynical side of my, of myself says, is it really that different? Haven't it, hasn't it just been the same for years, for decades, since this land was stolen? 
since the border, this arbitrary border was created, um, since the decision was made without me, isn't that, hasn't it always been this way? Um, and so for me, it's a, it's, it's a, it's just another battle in this long, long war against people like me and my ancestors. And um, I have to see it that way because otherwise I'd be defeated. Because otherwise there'd be no hope. Um, and there could be this president or the last one. I mean, we, I'll say it bluntly, you know, he, we called him the deporter in chief for a reason. Um, and, or, or the one before that who decided to send uh, all of us <laughs> into war, right? Or, or the one before that who, who, who then gave us a hope with DACA or the one before that who gave us a home, hope with the DREAM Act, right? Like, or the one before that who gave us hope with, with, with the Bracero program. I think that there are just so many instances in which we, we, we win or lose fights and battles, but we ultimately don't win the war. And I think for me, how it makes me feel is that one, I feel hope. I feel inspired by the amount of empathy that COVID has created. I feel inspired by the marches and by the solidarity across movements and different silos of social justice or what we call Jedi. Um, and and, and I, I know that there will be a day, hopefully in my lifetime in which um, we reclaim this land. And it is, it is, it is start, but for me, I express my violence in entrepreneurship. Um, how do we reclaim a food system that better serves people like me? How do we reclaim financial vehicles and systems that better serve people like me? I think that that's my version of, of, of a fight or of a battle that I'm, that I'm waging against the system. And honestly, that's what gives me hope. The presidency and their acts to dismantle, to, 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 um, their acts to slow us down in, in, in that sense for me is uh, just another battle that, that we are fighting. Um, and so my hope is that, that uh, the undocumented immigrant community is supported just, just as much as we are supporting all the other efforts, which is why I talk about it so much. Yes, and as you point out, the federal government does some things, but so much depends on the state and local governments as well. And this particular president has may expressed things far more vocally than other politicians in the past. But the response that he's received from his supporters indicates it wasn't that they had never thought these things before. They'd just never been willing to say them out loud before. And I do also take some hope from the fact that we now have a much better understanding of how some people actually feel. And only by understanding how they actually feel and seeing that unseemly underbelly, as you put it, uh, can we actually then try to educate and change their minds? Yeah, I had this wonderful professor at MSU Denver um, at, the, at the point I was changing my majors. I changed it like six times because I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And I, really, I was really scared that medicine wasn't going to be the way. Um, and so I went to human services and I took an intro class after taking biochemistry and physics and all those stuff. And um, she taught me something really, really, really wonderful. And she said that the problem is defined by the person that it impacts the most. Um, um, and then I said, wow, then therefore the solution may be defined, better defined by that same person, um, but that it requires everyone, right? Um, because we're all kind of in this ship together. 
Um, and so, and people are like, no, we're in different ships. It's like, nope, we are in one ship and it's moving in this speed, in this direction. And we need to start defining problems. The problem needs to be, the problem needs to be, and we need to start letting people who are impacted by the problem the most, define them, solve them. And we need to be, a, all of us need to be a part of those solutions. And this includes this underbelly. Absolutely. And one of the things that I do amongst others is I have some involvement with the D school at Stanford and the D school has been very good about promoting a movement of inclusive design, which says it's great that you want to use your design skills to address these societal problems. But unless you are co-creating the solutions with the people that you are trying to help, you're not helping. Right. People need to be a part of the solution. Again, as, as Teju put it, they don't want to be rescued. They right. want someone to help them with the tools to rescue themselves. And I think that's such an important point. That's a, you bring a really great point. You know, it, it, there's a phrase, nothing about us without us. Um, um, Aunt Jemima and the relabel of Aunt Jemima. Mm -hmm. Great. You changed the face of it. Did you change the fruct, the, uh, the, uh, the, the syrup that makes us sick, that makes us inflamed? that makes us heavy and diabetic? No, because that decision wasn't, was not really about us or with us. It was really about you and your brand. Um, and, and that's a very specific thing that we can point to where you change the face of something, you can greenify or beautify or whatever you wanna call it. But then did you really change the impact that it's having within a community? Or was it just for the bottom line? And symbols are important. Don't get me wrong. Symbols are important. But the underlying structures are the things that actually impact people's lives. And exactly. it's that structural change, the substantive change, not just the labels that matter so much. Exactly. It's not just the, it's not just the face. And, and I think that's what he, they're hinting at at Stanford, right? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's more than just design. It needs to be not just inclusive. Perhaps it needs to be completely dismantled, destroyed, disrupted, and rebuilt. Now, speaking of rebuilding, and especially at remarkable speed, let's talk about Bondadosa and get us, uh, take us to the very beginnings of the pandemic, say, let's call it March 1st of this year, which remarkably enough was just four and a half months ago. I know it must seem like longer. Talk about what Bondarosa's mission was at that point, how large the organization was, where things stood. You know, we've been fighting, we've been, we've been creating experiments to try and solve food access problems um, for three years. And it involves everything from um, getting grocery stores to shop differently, people who shop at grocery stores to shop differently, liquor stores to source differently can they become a food because there's so many liquor stores in low-income neighborhoods like can instead of kicking them out can we say all right you want to sell alcohol cool can you sell like healthy food too can we re can we launch an enterprise around 7-elevens that are actually more sustainable and can we build a franchise that that does that right we experimented with that um we experimented with farm to table how do you close the supply chain um we experimented with um farm shares can we, can we get those farm shares to more people? In fact, we try to get them to wake families and that's what we're doing. Um, I mean, all these different experiments, rapid prototyping, back to Tom Chi, right? The various levels of, of, of distribution in very lean way 
can we pick can we can we pick up store and deliver that's all we do really and if we're using one system um can we if everyone's using the same infrastructure can we get the same high quality food that is being sourced stored and delivered to high income neighborhoods to be stored to be sourced stored and delivered for low income neighborhoods if it's the same entity doing it um, and then it all of a sudden becomes really easy because Bondadosa has the values and then therefore we have the food and the, the food's going to make it there, right? And so at the time we were at staff of about 12. We had uh, two Nissan Leafs and we were, and I was still doing routes sometimes, right? Because it was, it was just part of their job and fundraising and doing all the things. And then um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to pay my staff. I didn't know if we were going to make it past the second quarter. And I didn't know if I had figured it out yet. I didn't know. And I just didn't. I mean, we we're growing. We could see a 30 to 40% growth rate. But it wasn't, it wasn't enough to create some sort of, you know, investment in Bondadosa. Um, that's hard. I mean, we can go on a whole nother rant about why that happens um, and why, you know, we, we can't hit the fastballs that are being thrown at us. Um, and so March 8, March 14 happens. March 14 happens and a city in, in, in the United States shuts down and all of a sudden everyone's like, wow, this is real. The bubble around the United States, like it wasn't gonna hit us, right? Like we just kept this like cruise ship in the Bay Area and we had isolated it. It was all of a sudden like, oh, this is how we're gonna solve this problem. Blew up and they said, wow it's coming ready everyone brace i was i was on a phone call with someone his name is ruben hernandez he runs a uh, a a fund out of chile and he called and i call him and i said what are we going to do and he's like communities are going to be impacted the most who's better positioned to do it and i was and he's like go fundraise <laughs> it must have been a seven minute call i hung up and um, then we, all of a sudden, there was some, a client called me in and said, hey, we want to prepare for COVID. Can we start doing deliveries? You know, and I said, yeah, of course. What if we did more? And then I was like, well, what if we did more? What does that look like? What if we put an 18-wheeler next to a church who has a commissary kitchen next to a cafe and we store all this product that's not going to be used because restaurants are closing and we turn them into meals get philanthropy to pay for the meals, pay for the drivers, pay for the vehicles, and redistribute them throughout the entire neighborhood. Could we do that? <laughs> My craziness said, yeah, we can. Of course, we can do that with 12 people. And man, did it just blow up. We put up, we stood up a website where people could sign up. And um, in a matter of, in, a, in one month, uh, we were already, the first day we delivered 100 meals, which I was, ecstatic about in one day 130 deliveries that's a big deal for our company now was this just one day after you stood this up did it take a couple of days to get the infrastructure or you were just off and running it was wednesday it was we had this conversation on sunday monday we stood up the website tuesday we had the food on by wednesday we had already delivered we had delivered 134 meals right that's Very amazing possible. there was no 18 wheeler yet we we're just using a truck to to store the food we were just using the kitchen to make the meals. And it's not just Bondalosa, right? There was different partners um, involved, uh, La City and, and others who were there at the time. Um, and then 
the following week on a Monday, we took the weekend off. We're like, okay, we got to reset. This is going to be crazy. We did 300 and something orders. And then we did a thousand. And then we did 10,000. And then we did 30,000 per week. And then we got up to um, 250,000 in three months. Meals wow. delivered. Um, built and delivered to low-income families were 350,000 meals in three months. 80% of those meals went to low-income um, families who, sorry, uh, house, every meal went to low-income families, but 80% of those meals went to households that had children in them. Mm-hmm. And then 50% of those meals went to households that had older adults in them. And so we stood, we went from doing maybe, maybe 2,700 deliveries per year to do it per year to doing 15,000 deliveries per month. So in from February to the end of, so, so let's just say March, the middle of March to the middle of May, where that, that happened. Um, and That's two orders of magnitude right there. Just, just in one, in one month. Wow. And then, um, well, that's, no, that's more because I've said 2,700 orders per year. And then we did them for a month. So that's probably, I think, what the, the math is about 9.7 times. Yeah. Um, sorry, Chris. But it, yeah, so it was doing like a maybe, yeah, maybe around 300 orders per month to 15,000 orders per, 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 per month, which was crazy. I mean, everything broke. Absolutely everything chattered. Uh, we were doing order intake using Google Maps and Google Sheets because, you know, I wasn't going to reinvest all this money. Tom Chi taught me better that I should not build with <laughs> for something that I wasn't using. And so I didn't for a long time. It was just Google spreadsheets, Google Maps, trying to figure out exactly what we were doing. And um, that broke immediately afterwards. The system, the SaaS product that we that we thought was going to solve everything also broke the following month. Um, and it continues to break. Our customer service software that we were using was a text message, my phone, in which I woke up at four in the morning and was sending text messages to all the customers and then be ready at 9 a.m. for meetings. Um, also broke. Uh, I think we've sent around 200,000 segments of text messages um, in over the last three months. So that, that also blew up. And all of our onboarding processes too, you know, just building a team is hard. It's difficult enough, but then you have to do it over Zoom and everyone's wearing masks, and everyone's wearing gloves. Um, and I think, you know, building a team and the dynamic was, was really interesting. Um, we went from a staff of 12 to about 100 almost in just that coalition alone. Talk, and then that's just one project, right? Because every account needed delivery too. So everyone needed delivery. All of our former clients needed delivery. Everyone else needs delivery. Every nonprofit now needs delivery. Every school system needed delivery. And so there's all this just stress on this, on this little tiny organization of 12 who had this grand vision of a more sustainable food system. Um, and they thought that it would need it in five years. Little did we know that an entire food system would fail in 48 hours. And, that, and that's, that's crazy, right? That is incredible. Mm-hmm. So you actually compressed basically five years of progress into a month yep. and grew your team over this pandemic by a factor of 10 from 12 to over a hundred. Yep. That is absolutely remarkable. And uh, the reason I became so interested is I am a scholar of, of rapid scaling. So I wrote a book called blitz scaling 
And all the things that you talk about tie in so well. The fact that you do things that don't scale because you're trying, you've learned the lessons from Tom Chi. So you start off with spreadsheets. You don't try to build some gigantic system at first. You right. have to continually change your approach because each time you increase in scale, the things that worked before stop working, whether it's tools or, or how you work with your people. Now, where does the organization stand today as of July 15th? And of course, by the time this comes out uh, in a day or two, it may very well be different. But where do things stand today? You know, we're a team of six. We continue to be a team of 65. We onboard two people or three people every single week um, to try and keep up with the demand. Um, there's a ton of inefficiency, a ton of empathy first, right? And then when that dies out, I realize that everyone kind of goes away too. Um, organizations begin to say, well, you know, I kind of want, I want to see come from my own future. And so everything is opening up again. And, you know, we got to think about what that future looks like for us. And then all of a sudden back, we go back to the world in which no one cares about food access or doesn't care enough about food access. And so um, that was hard. That was hard to see from entities, from other businesses, from people. Um, but then a lot of that stayed. There was a lot of folks in my staff who have never, ever been about food justice. Um, but then we're like, I grew up this way too. Oh, wow, I can do something about it too. Um, some of my staff, you know, qualify for WIC before. They grew up with WIC. They grew up with food banks. They grew up with, with food access issues. And so it's just been really interesting to now compress, to compress to, to, to how do I explain it? It's been very diff it's been really interesting to compress the entity to really squeeze out all the inefficiencies, not from a stress around like the growth of the demand right but from who really cares who wants mm. to solve this problem long term because it's coming um, again COVID, the wave second wave I think it's it is true and, and and we're not this country is not doing enough to to slow it down but the food access problem continues to exist continue to exist will continue to exist and they existed before. And so for us, we really, really want to look for sustainable ways to solve this problem long-term. And so the company itself is going through an exploration phase of what that sustainability looks like and what, 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 what real work uh, needs to be done in order for us to meet the demand. To give you a glimpse of what the demand was before COVID-19, 16 million meals a year are skipped in the city and county of Denver alone because they don't know where the next meal is going to come from. And one out of four of these meals are from children under the age of, four, of 18. So th that was before COVID. That was March 15th, okay, before, before everything hit. Afterwards, when you have 50%, if not more, of people losing their wages, their jobs, becoming, you know, um, dependent on, 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 on benefits who, that are intended to be there for, to, to get them out of those, these weird ruts, um, imagine the impact there. Um, maybe, maybe doubled, tripled. We don't know that. Um, and so Bondadosa is really exploring what it would look like to deliver um, 7,000 meals per day. How do we get to that point? What, how do we get to 40,000 meals per day? Because delivering 30,000 meals per week was about 4% was about of, of, of the solution. And so right now my, my real focus is to build a team that can tackle this problem uh, head on and not be so reactionary right mm -hmm. but be 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 well versed in the ideas of a blitz scaling because this is what this problem requires yes and one of the things i'm also working on 
uh, with another collaborator of mine, Professor Richard Tedlow of Harvard Business School, is the notion of how do you catalyze these things? And for us, we have a model where we bring together what we call the three C's. There's the credo, the mission, the thing you're trying to accomplish. I think that's very clear. The second element is the culture. And you describe that where you're saying, I'm squeezing down the organization to the people who really care, who are really passionate about this. And that's building that culture that's going to allow you to carry out the credo. Mm -hmm. But the final piece of the picture, and I can see it just from speaking with you, is what we call charisma. Now, you're very charismatic. You, you tell me, listen, I'm nothing special, but you are absolutely special. The fact is many other people are special as well, but you are absolutely special. And when it comes to charisma, I suspect that one of the things behind it is we describe charisma not as being able to make fancy speeches, though I'm sure you can, but as the ability to get people on your team to view working for an organization, not as an economic relationship, but as a social relationship. It's not, I give you money and therefore you work for me. It's you join this organization because there's a mission you believe in, there's a culture you fit in with, and this is going to allow you to do the best work of your career. And I see that in what you're building. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in that that is what has gotten us this far, for sure. I think the, uh, being able to tell my story and tell them and give people a good sense of why, why I, my why has been one of the reasons why they feel like they can do it too um, and why it resonates with them. I think, I think one of the reasons why we've been so successful is because for the first time ever maybe in a very long time, um, everyone, no one knew where their next meal was going to come from. And then everyone got to the grocery store and they all took toilet paper. I don't, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but I think there was this whole like rush to find, to be secure, to be safe, to know that at least in your own household, you're going to be okay. And that level of empathy is what, what I lead with. Um, and I think that that is what makes, uh, Bondadosa are myself and my team so charismatic and so able to 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 woo right to woo the the entities that are sometimes part of the problem and it is so important to note that this is one of the ways the pandemic has brought change and again the pandemic hopefully is not permanent i tell people all the time that medical science is going to find vaccines is going to find treatments and a lot sooner than many people think although it still will probably not be generally available until 2021. Mm -hmm. But the pandemic makes change by changing the experiences that people have, by putting new experiences into their lives they never had before. All those people who rushed to get toilet paper, who went to the shelves and saw there weren't enough canned beans or, or what have you, they experienced food insecurity for the very first time in their lives for many of these people. But this is something that the people that you're serving experience every day. And people just had no concept of how viscerally it felt. And now they do. Right. And I think that that, that, that level, that it, it hit a very sore muscle, right? Or sorry, a very sore spot for people. Um, and they reacted a certain kind of way. And I think that now you can see why people would react a different kind of way. What have you 
grew up this way for and you live this way forever what does that do to you psychologically how does that impact you how does that impact your ability to grow and see this world with a ton of light and opportunity it does it does it dismantles that and it distorts that reality and therefore i think people um are broken down to a to a, to a place where they are no longer self-sufficient and are reliant of systems that are constantly abusing them uh, and i think that um we can name them you know there there are plenty of entities who charge more for products within a low-income neighborhood because we know that the people are coming in with snap benefits we do that we do that as business owners of 7-elevens of dollar trees and paycheck advance centers and um, you know, these shopping districts that exist in low-income neighborhoods, we do that as business owners for a, for a bottom line. And we prey on people who are broken and, and disillusioned and um, in a very tight, tight, tight spot. And for the very first time, all of us were there too. No amount of money could get you more beans. No amount of money could get you more rice. And no amount of money could get you um, exactly what you needed. And for, I was, it was a four in the morning on a Saturday, the weekend after that we started all this, we have a client, it's called the Grow House. And we had about 300 and something orders for the weekend. Um, they were bagged and boxed. And every single one of these orders had eggs, bread, and um, veggies, high quality premium veggies. Um, and they're all going to high income individuals. Those were the most food secure individuals that day. I had purchased that food five days ago. And what I clicked for me and packaged it, right? So we had pack, we, we had purchased that food and the grow house had purchased this food and packaged it a few days ago. And they had signed up for this subscription a week ago, if not more. They had anticipated, what I learned was that they were anticipating their need for food. And I think that that was something really special at, to, to recognize at, at, at four in the morning because the food system that we built today is so reactionary to like who might come into a store in fact you decide where you're going to build a grocery store depending on who's going to walk into your door but you don't know who might come into your door so you make all these assumptions are they too is this community too brown too black too poor un, 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 uneducated are there a high number of single moms in this neighborhood and then all of a sudden you don't have a grocery store those are real metrics that we as business owners use to make informed decisions about how are we going to be financially viable. And our food system has completely messed those up, in my opinion, because I think that a single mom who qualifies for WIC, qualify for SNAP, should have access to the very same eggs that a high quality, that a high, high uh, excuse me, that a high income individual had that morning at 4 a.m. at our warehouse. And that's why since the system is broken and this, that is why we do what we do. And what you're doing is you're essentially building oases and carrying water to all these people who are stuck in these food deserts, because that's the terminology I think that, that people use, right? These grocery stores do not serve the areas of greatest need. They've made business decisions not to. And the people who do come in, again, they're motivated by the profit motive. Nothing wrong with that. Capitalism is, is something I support. Yep. But it means that people who need it most are actually being served the worst. Yep. And I think that um, 
maybe they're being served a different way. I think it is not worse. I think everyone has a bad. I think the food system is 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 corrupt, and and also very 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 fractured for everyone. And if you knew where your food comes from, you wouldn't support it either. If you knew what the back door of a Whole Foods looked like, you wouldn't support it either. Believe me, I know. If you knew how long your banana sat in a warehouse and how it was sprayed and how it was colored in a single way to be presented beautifully in front of you and the impact that it had on the neighbor on the neighbors that that they actually cultivated it you wouldn't support it either but people just don't know right and so i think i would like to say and push back and say it's not that it is being served worse everyone is being served the same system it's just that there are people are being monetized differently um I, what I found out was that most people spend about the same amount of money for food. On average in Denver, I think it's about $338 per month. Where you spend that money is just, a, and, and where that money comes from, just depends on who you are. And that is what I realized that, that the, when, when I realized that the food system is, what, what it's doing, it's serving you in a very different way. Not worse or bad, it's all bad, I think. Um, there's a ton of opportunity um, for it, for it to be disrupted, and maybe that's you know that's maybe that's too cynical of me, but I don't know. I think I, I no. Yeah. I mean, I think that what that says is in many it may, you call it cynical. I think there's also uh, even greater opportunity in there because what you're saying is, look, you know, our mission is to improve the food system. It's not limited to improving the food system for those with lower incomes, the people with higher incomes also need help. Now, again, there's a prioritization there. Uh, I would say that, you know, I'm not as, I don't think it's as urgent for you to fix the, the system for all those Whole Foods shoppers, but the system is still harming them just as it is harming lower income shoppers as well. I think you're absolutely right. And the way that if you're shopping at these grocery stores and you don't know, let's just talk about a basket of strawberries. And you don't know that the, when you pay $4.99 for a Driscoll's, um, and I'm saying all these brands, we can omit them, but when you're paying for, this, for, these, for, these, for these strawberries, you don't know how much of that money is actually going to the farmer. The immigrant farmer who spent the entire day picking these strawberries is still picked by someone. And you don't know that about maybe 25 cents of that made it to the farm and maybe 0 .0 something cents made it to that farmer's pocket. And if you were a high income individual, highly educated, also affluent individual, you'd know that that's not okay. You wouldn't be okay with that. Um, you wanna solve this problem too. And there is no solution out there uh, teaching you that and, and giving you a better option. All right, Ricardo, so where should I get my strawberries? And the answer is, well, you should go to the farmer, but not everyone has access to the farmer. And even if you went to the farmer, you wouldn't be able to get them uh, you wouldn't be able to get them either, right? And so it is it is it is prime for disruption disruption. And I think it's definitely tech based. I think this 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 industry is very, very much ready for disruption, almost like the taxi industry was. I hope we can do it better um, uh, uh, than than Lyft and Uber in a more sustainable and more social way. But um, I think it's it's at that it's at that at that cusp. Now, there are a couple of things that we've talked about, not on this recording, but which I think are very interesting. Some of the challenges that you've faced at Bonarosa. 
And one of them is the fact that you eventually got to the point where people working on the team tested positive for COVID-19. It was something that you knew was inevitable, but at the same time, it's a huge stress. Talk about how you planned for it and how you were able to overcome that. You know, we planned for it all day. I think every day, all day, since we found out, um, we weren't ready for it. We were not ready for it. There's nothing that prepares you for losing someone that um, you've worked with and not know whether or not this virus is gonna be a potent strain of a virus that uh, causes him his lungs to collapse or whatever, right? Um, that's not, that wasn't prepared for that. Um, some of the people that were impacted by COVID-19 at that time, um, which was around May 1st, May 2nd, um, uh, were, were really close friends of mine. I mean, they've helped me build this company. And so it was really, really painful for me to see that. And I almost felt like I did that to them because I, I led them into this idea of like, we're going to deliver all this food. Um, and so that was a problem. That was something that hurt really a lot. And it, hurt, and it, it, it brought some perspective to my, to my, to my life around self-care, around um, making sure that my employees are insured and that our contractors are insured. I still haven't figured that out. Um, uh, but it was, it was just a very raw uh, feeling. And then um, I realized how it all originated from a warehouse and how that warehouse was connected to three different warehouses around the front range. So the potential that it was going to ruin a food system in Colorado Springs and Denver and then, and then Brighton was real. And then all the different product that was then distributed from those entities was then also then could have been contaminated in somewhere or another and how that then went to people's homes um, was such a crazy feeling on a Sunday morning and um, by Monday we needed to have tests and by Tuesday I needed to have reports back to find out who else was positive um, and at the time there was no test um, I think at the time there was no uh, federal funding uh, for these tests um, and it was really slowed down and there was a, a lot of legislators and governors holding uh, test hostages, <laughs> test uh, hostage in, in their in their bunk in in their in their reserve somewhere, and I was able to tap into one of them through a connection um, through a Republican senator, I think that's how it happened, um, and um, that was weird too, because I he's against immigrants all the time. Um, and so, uh, and then all of a sudden he's up an entity who, who is, is trying to, um, who believes very different ideals from him. And so it was just such a weird time for me in, 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 in that. And then also telling all of our clients that we need to stop. In the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of everything, we need to have a very hard stop and reset. Um, that was incredibly damaging, but I think it also set the tone for everyone else involved. This is serious, this is real. We're going to react to it in this way, um, and we're going to take it with um, with incredible amount of rigor um, in terms of how how we're going to address it and how we're going to try and prevent it from happening again. Yeah, gloves, masks, hand sanitizer, sourcing all of that was incredibly difficult and continues to be very difficult to source masks and to source source enough masks um, in a timely manner. Um, and all the different protect, personal protective equipment that is required to do what we do. Got it. But it sounds like you have been able to reemerge. You've been able to restart again with additional precautions, but it's something you overcame. Yeah. Yesterday we had a notification from five different employees who were 
um, from different people that are not associated with each other that were around someone who tested positive for COVID. Mm. Um, that was much easier today than it was in, Mar in May. You've built resilience into the there, system. That's right. Now we know. So the other thing that you mentioned, in fact, right before we began recording, is just this week, and this is very common in organizations that are growing this quickly, you reorganized the organization and you ended up being surprised by the emotional toll it, it took on you. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I was, I realized that we, if we want to be the company that we want to be, and if we're going to support a food system that we need to drastically change the way that we behave and the way that we approach problems. I love to recruit people who are incredibly resilient, incredibly resilient. They are deeply impacted by this issue. They care and they understand the pain that, that goes into, um, into growing up the way that I grew up, right? And it might not be as painful. It's not, it's not a pain that you kind of like can measure on a scale to one to 10, but it definitely builds resiliency. And that resiliency allows people to push through a lot of problems, and that's true, but also allows them to kind of like hold on to a lot of pain and not say anything. And what I realized was that my entire team was doing that. My entire team was experiencing a ton of operational pain and not saying anything because there's nothing compared to not knowing what your meal, what next meal is going to come from. So we're going to make sure that we do whatever it takes to get a meal to someone who needs it or a box to someone who's expecting it right uh, a box of food to someone who's expecting it and so they held on to all this pain which is what they're expected to do but that's not what i want them to do and i realized that in order to do that i needed to break that up i needed to change the way that we experience pain and the way that we use it to build um just the same way that a customer feels pain like we want to use that to to build something special for for internally right so that they can work more effectively together and mm -hmm. so what i did was dismantle the, the entity uh, around operations and usually we had two tiers right the people who have drivers uh, and the people who communicate with customers we need to get that order delivered and we restructured them we made it there's this concept around person dependent versus systems dependent um, in education that's been taught to me for for other reasons and I applied it here and I said, how do we make it so that any account, no matter who they are, is dependent on a system and not a person? What I realized was that Marcos, for example, very charismatic dude, um, very, very much uh, resilient and was also very deeply connected to all the resources at Bondadosa. His accounts were flourishing. They were doing well. They had PPE, they had all the things. And then everyone else kind of suffered. And I realized that it was because he was the bearer of all resources and he was using them to the best of his ability in a really wonderful way um, but everyone else suffered and so that's kind of what I dismantled and, and made it so that it was more system dependent but also um, I used this framework around um, being rigid fluid and porous you know what am I really rigid about what am I okay with changing and what do I need to take on like that that I never, never thought about in the past and then I I gave him a framework around um, a timeline uh, impact versus time and how we're going to disrupt this. And this was going to feel really, really bad. And it was going to get worse before it got better. And as we went to explore what this is going to look like, that it was going to um, build upon a stronger foundation that could actually take on 500 clients if we wanted them. If we want to get to a point where we're delivering 
you know, doing 7,000 of 10,000 deliveries per day, we, ne we needed to change drastically who we are and how we approach the pain that we experience internally so that we can solve the pain that we, that we, that we want to solve externally, right? For families who are in need. A couple of final shorter questions, because I know you have a lot of important work to get to, but it's always just good for people to get to know you. The first question would be, what's a favorite book of yours? People love book recommendations. What's a favorite book that's really had an impact on your life? Oh man, that's a hard one. You're going to, yeah, yeah I, I need to read more now that, now that you say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, right now I am reading... I believe it's called The Power of Moments mm -hmm. by, I, I, I don't know who it is, uh, who's the author is. Um, there has been an incredible amount of insignificant moments in my life. Um, but there has also been an incredible amount of significant moments that I cherish with me and I keep them in jars in my head somewhere. Um, and they've made me who I am. Um, I lately have been thinking about how I go about my day creating beautiful moments or meaningful and impactful moments for everyone on my staff. Is it through a lunch? Is it just shutting up more and listening more? Is it, um, is it a view? Is it a walk? Is it a, is it a challenge? Is it, facing, is it creating confrontation, confront, a confrontation when I could just let it go? Or could I just let something go where I could just easily make a confrontation about it? Um, capturing these moments has been, has been a personal goal of mine and, and, and it's just been recent uh, because I realized how, how, how crazy, how different, sorry, I've realized how, I now realize how different my life would be if very special moments wouldn't have happened. Leonardo not sponsoring me, me not meeting Manuela, me not deciding that I don't want to do medicine because I saw a type two diabetic go through what they went through um, and why they would, the, the problems weren't solved or um, me experiencing Marcos come down with COVID and him having trouble breathing um, or all the little things too, right? Like um, all the text messages that we receive where everyone says, thank you so much. This means the world to me. Um, or why is in my order at my door? I want to cancel it. You know, <laughs> all these very interesting moments. And my, my that book has really um, reset the way that I think of, of of these beautiful moments that are that are happening all around us. And COVID is one of them. Absolutely. Well, these are all moments, experiences that we can learn from. And obviously, one of the things that's great about you is that you are always looking to learn from these things. You're looking to say, how can I be better? How can I change? What can I take away from this? And that's apparent in, in all the things that you talk about. One final question, which is this. If you had the ability to call up your 18-year-old self, and it sounds like this is before Leonardo sponsored you, before all these things happened, what would you want to tell him? What message would you send to him that would either make things different or make things easier or just a, a voice of encouragement from his future self. Mm, so much that I could tell him. Uh, I'm stuck between two things. Go uh, ahead and use both. Both of them. You have enough uh, time on the call. You have enough time on the call for both. <laughs> That's true. 
I think for me, it's about a, a couple of rules, right? Mm-hmm. One, one of them is a 2020 rule around the fact 20% less than what I would expect and 20 per, or 20% more than what I would do. Like those, those, that rule really changed the way that I manage, the way that I, that I build expectations for my team, the way that I show grace and the way that I'm forgiving with as, as, as people on my team make mistakes. Um, I think it's allowed me to build really strong relationships. The other one is that everything, you know, is not the other saying that I really love is um, nothing is as bad as it seems or as good as it seems. Um, and that um, that would sh- that would show would have shown myself a lot of grace at that time. Um, and I think that it would have perhaps if I would have known that I would have I would have become a doctor, right? Or I would have do all these things or I, and so I don't know if those, that, that would change. So perhaps not, maybe it would have been the same thing and I would have gotten to something like this quicker. Um, but those are the two rules that I really think that are, that are, have transformed me. Um, and my 18 year old self would have uh, loved those two things. Wonderful. Now, if anyone's listening has heard this inspiring story and thought to themselves, wow, I really love what Ricardo is doing. I'm really interested in Bondadosa or I want to get involved. Where would they go? Where would they go to learn more about you? Where would they go to learn more about Bondadosa? They go to bondadosa.org. Um, I'm not spending a lot of money on that website uh, because <laughs> uh, I would get in trouble when Tom Shee would say no. Uh, but I think um, that is where you can get a hold of us. We try to keep it up to date with the, the projects that we are working on and our partners. Um, and that is where, where you'll find my contact information and the contact information to my team. We love to say that we, we are a sandbox for food access projects. Um, and we have very specific um, toys, right, to play with. Um, and that's storage, technology, and distribution. Um, and if you have an idea, if you are thinking of doing something, if you want to um, share something with us, please do it there. Um, we love, we love partner. We love these kinds of partnerships where, um, we dismantle systems that are, um, inherently, um, uh, creating food access barriers to individuals who, who need them dismantled the most. And again, that's bondadosa.org, which is B O N D bonda A. I'm messing it up. Why don't you spell it? Uh, B-O-N-D-A-D-O-S-A dot org. Bondadosa dot org. Perfect. Ricardo, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know there's meals to be delivered. There's experiments to be run. There's so many things going on, but I felt like your story was such an important one that people should hear. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah. Have, have a good day, a great day, everyone. Thank you so much.